Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. As you'll hear at the beginning here, this was supposed to be one of those worries about progressive Christianity episodes. And so we initially start framing the conversation that way. But I would say that what it really became about is is the stuff in the title. Although there's a little bit of that kind of where do we draw those lines? What might be kind of worrisome? Or what does Jace find uncompelling or unconvincing about more progressive or liberal approaches uh, to theology, to understanding Christian tradition? But we get into kind of more like, I don't know, frankly, interesting psychological territory. And I like that we uh, get into kind of resurrection, creeds, miracles, stuff like that, because that's very much on my mind. Anyway, if you like those worries about episodes, you'll like this one. And maybe just all of you will like it. I hope so. Okay, we'll get into the episode here. Jace Broadhurst, thanks for being here with me, man, for one of these you know, we're saying it's worries about progressive Christianity. That is technically the episode type we are starting with, but I don't know where this is going to go. There might not be all that much disagreement, but I think we're going to have fun kind of weaving through interesting waters here. You're a, a good friend of Josh Patterson, Rethinking Faith, who was like, you should have Jason on for one of these. 
And let me let me actually just kind of set you up for that. You're, you're a pastor. These days you're doing transition work for churches who have uh, often lost pastors through trauma, scandal, stuff like that. For the last 20 years, you've pastored and taught. You've been a college pastor. You've had university students. So your your kind of take on all of this is is interesting to me. And you've primarily, your scholarly work has been primarily in Old Testament and hermeneutics. You studied with Pete Enns. You, you know a lot about Genesis and Exodus. We'll see if we can get that in here. We were talking, of course, before we started. And I want to hear a little bit from your mouth about how, okay, Josh, I'll do this. But then what am I going to talk with Dan about? So maybe, maybe kind of set us up for that. Yeah, so Josh and I are good friends, so I, I think he considers me kind of a mentor. I just consider him a friend. And so we're talking theology all the time, and he's definitely on the progressive side, and I've always been in more traditional churches, you know, um, Presbyterian, even Southern Baptist for a long time. And first of all, he told me to listen to you, so I've been listening to you for years. And he said, you got, you got to get on this. I'm like, I don't, progressive, I don't, I don't really even know how to define progressive. Who is a progressive now? I mean, McLaren would gladly own that. Pete Enns probably would own that. Yeah. But if I look them up, it's like N.T. Wright, Crossan, Borg, Bentley Hart. Like, Who's calling N.T. Wright a progressive? Lots of people, yeah. People just, who are scared. Famous famous, uh, famous progressive. So wow, yeah, like that's the, funny. The super scholarly side and the, I'm just writing a book. Like, like you're going you're gonna to eventually ask me, Andrew, what are my actual worries? You know my biggest worry? Half the books that I read by progressives don't have footnotes. So that's that's my biggest worry. Like, <laughs> like that seems to be the new trend is no footnotes. But like, yeah. I want to know where you're getting these ideas. Don't just make them up. Are they coming from the Bible? Are they coming from philosophy? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's well, one thing that's interesting is like I actually have been feeling like the word progressive is feeling less apt to describe myself. Uh, maybe just because much like the word evangelical, it's it's kind of taken on a sociocultural content to it. Like when I first thought, I think I'm a progressive Christian. I think I can admit this to myself maybe five, six years ago. It meant, you know, I mean, that was post-Trump. It wasn't like pre-culture war or anything, but I meant by it really theological things. I meant like a looser hold on inspiration of scripture, things like that. Hell, the Canaanite conquest, you know, all those things. The, the language I've been using recently is like, I am a classic liberal mainline Protestant who was born 60 years too late. Yeah. You know, nice. like I would have been a lot more comfortable in the middle 20th century with Paul Tillich on the cover of Time magazine. I'm almost thinking like, I, probably I'm like a liberal Christian is actually the the like historically accurate term. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm less interested in sort of progressive culture war issues. Uh, but when it comes to the text and the tradition and all that stuff, I highly metaphorical, highly experiential kind of, you know, psychological lens of understanding these claims of the Christian tradition, kind of distancing myself from a more straightforward kind of factual confessional approach. That continuum between whatever conservative to progressive to liberal, you place yourself on that liberal scale. I, I wouldn't place myself there, but again, I'd have to piece out each little piece to find out where I end up. But I read recently for a church that I was applying for, I read uh, Spong's Unbelievable. He's written a long time, and I've, I've read some of his other things. But this one, I mean, I think he would consider himself liberal, not, not a progressive. He'd be like, I'm mm -hmm. a liberal. 
I don't think he believes in the resurrection. I don't think he believes in the ascension. None of those things. Yeah. And I read his book. I found myself agreeing with most of his academic things. Academically, I didn't have any real differences with him on almost anything, you know, here and there, of course. And that might be because he's smarter than me in certain areas and lots of areas. But then there was just like this jump at the end. Like he'd go all the way to the end and then he'd be like, so obviously Jesus didn't raise from the dead. I was like, I don't, I don't know that we got there as we were talking about how historiography and mythography work. And then you just jumped and said, it can't happen or this miracle can't happen. And I was like, to me, that that's like the jump to liberalism from progressive. I, I'm okay with saying, yeah, all those things can be true. The ascension, for instance, that he may not have actually lifted off the ground, moved up into the clouds. That may be a way of explaining his ascent to the throne. That's possible. but. I'm okay with him actually use, doing mythical-type things in order to make a point as well. It might be the author. It might be Jesus. I don't know that it's—I'm not sure I have to fight that battle. Mm. Um, but so I, I guess I find myself a little bit more conservative than someone like Spong. But I find myself—and maybe because Pete was my teacher and friend ends—I find myself following him on most everything and most of the directions that he goes. I don't—I'm not— I'm not concerned about it. It's not worries at that point though, right? So you're not, you, you read to that point in the Spong book and you go, okay, I, I don't think I'm following you from D to E. I think you left out E, F, G and you're actually at H or whatever. Right. Yep. But like when you read that, or if you, if you hear someone say, yeah, so we, so a reasonable person can't affirm the virgin birth, the ascension, the resurrection, you pick, pick your item. That doesn't, like, does it worry you in any meaningful way? Or do you just go, no, oh, I think I disagree on that, but, you know, go with God or, you know, like, what's the, what's that like internally? Yeah, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm worried. Probably the second. Yeah, go with God. It's okay that we disagree on these things. I might try and persuade them mm -hmm. of, you know, how, how history writing works at that time and what it's trying to accomplish. But I don't feel the need to force them into my mold. Obviously, a lot of what constitutes progressive or liberal Christianity, as opposed to more traditional or, you know, I, I've been interested in the word confessional Christianity, which I take to mean basically claiming one of the creeds, Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, Westminster Confession, maybe if you're in like a reform tradition, like there's some particular version, like list of doctrines that's put together as some confession or other and saying, hey, all the work I'm going to do is kind of under the banner of affirming this confession. That obviously works logistically very well for something like a seminary, which is trying to train ministers in a particular, you know, denomination or theological tradition. It's a little less clear to me how confessionalism would be useful for someone like myself, you know, like I'm a freelance therapist and podcaster. I have no you know, denominational affiliation. So for me, if I'm going to say I'm confessional, it's going to be because I look at one of these confessions or creeds and I go, uh, yep, 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 yep. You know, like that would be like, I don't have a, there's no sort of career reason for me to do that. There's no employment right. reason. No one's kind of holding my feet to the fire. What's your relationship with confessionalism? If, if, I, if I'm using that word right, in your opinion. I think the, the point of confessions is just to connect you to a community. So it, and I think that's pretty important. In fact, it's probably one of my concerns about progressives 
is that they don't have a community. They have maybe a thousand different communities and there's nowhere that they can actually fight out, argue out, uh, be concerned together about something. So I have a confession like Westminster Confession, Heidelberg. Those are my confessions. Uh, Nicene, Apostles Creed, they're mine. Uh, but I, I more see those as old, ancient documents that are really helpful for their time in order to put them against something else. You know, either whether that's Roman Catholicism or if it's Apostles Creek, you know, what Gnosticism at the time there. So I am in a more reformed church. I'm happy with reformed theology and I see all of its ridiculousness as well. Uh, and, and so it's a place kind of to put your feet in order to critique. Like you have to have something, you have to have something to jump off of. You're like, here's where we're at. Okay, we're here. Now let's start arguing about this hopefully gently, kindly. But to me, it's like, it just gives me a camp from which to make an argument or, I don't know, agree with people to, to be in community with them. And so I, I don't know that I'm even, I, you know, people are like, you're in a reformed church. Are you a Calvinist? I, probably not. I, I don't, I don't even, like, I think they're asking all the wrong questions. All those theological statements are, you know, like, do I agree with this? Or I don't know. It's asking a question that the Bible doesn't care that much about, or maybe not at all. So why do why am I getting all wrapped up in it? I'm I'm a Bible guy. I don't I'm not a theologian. So hmm. I'd rather spend time in the Bible. I mean, I like that approach to confessionalism a lot more than some other options. I mean, it's probably worth saying a lot of people's employment and therefore their provision for their families, you know, is dependent upon sticking with a particular confession or other. So you and I are both privileged in that we don't have that hanging over our heads for our ability to like earn income and even maybe the transition work you're doing as a pastor. I mean, like that, that's interesting because it would seem like they might need you to. That's right. I have to have a sign off on a confession statement and I can do that, you know, as long as I can negotiate with it as I go. But I was in a denomination. We don't need to talk about the denomination itself, but, or I guess I wasn't totally in a denomination here, a little story time. I was hired to be a pastor in a denomination, and that was a beautiful, wonderful church. I still love it like crazy, go there all the time and visit. But I couldn't get ordained there after a year, and I did all their exams. They had five theological and Hebrew exegesis, all these different exams. They said it was wonderful, but they were concerned with my views on Adam and Eve. And so they have a box, and that's fine. That's their box. I, I, think, I don't think gatekeepers are evil. I think they, that's how you create some sort of a, you know, agreement on something. And they thought that I was outside of that Westminster box. I didn't think I was. I thought I could explain it pretty well. I didn't even make a statement. I basically said, I don't need Adam and Eve to be this or that in order for covenant theology or in order for my theological movement to work. And they said, you absolutely do need that. And so, yeah, so my employment ended. I was unable mm. to keep going with that. So yeah, my, my job, I have to, I have to be very careful what I say, uh, even to you. I'm out there looking for jobs all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that this will not in any way uh, hamper that search. It wouldn't be worth it as much as I love our listeners and want them to have good content, not at the cost of, of anybody's, uh, you know, ability to make a living. I, I, I think there's something already interesting that's coming up for me, which is these creeds or confessions, these, these doctrinal lists as, you know, you first mentioned it as like, it's basically 
a way to connect with a particular community, a way for that community to sort of set up some guardrails. Basically, you can look at confessions and statements of faith in this purely practical sort of social communal lens in which it allows people to feel comfortable enough around each other that they let each other into their lives. And speaking from a therapist's perspective, that's really important for people is to to have community uh, and not be solipsists inside their own head all the time or just, you know, like a lot of men, you know, my age have like a friend beyond maybe their spouse and, and or kids, you know, stuff like that. Like, so that's really, really important. And I, and I like that as a lens for understanding the value of these things in our modern day. I think what's difficult for me is there's also this other way that, that people so often mean them, including, I think the previous employers that you mentioned, which is like, these are truth claims and anybody who is outside of affirming these truth claims Well, sure, there might be a practical sense in which it doesn't make sense for them to be employed by us. And I think that's great. That's within their jurisdiction to decide that. But then there's this other sense, of course, that so often goes along with it. It's like, and also you're outside of God's truth. And that can be sort of believed or spoken with real conviction on the part of the person who thinks the other person is outside. And that's where it gets trickier for me, and I'm sure for you as well. I think people forget that these documents are compromised documents. You know, one person didn't sit down and write Westminster and everyone was like, absolutely, that's what we all agree on. You know, the divines are having debates for long periods of time and disagreeing vehemently with each other on that, no, it shouldn't be said like this, it should be said like this. And in the end, it's like, well, okay, it's it's better than what we had, or it's better than what we're trying to fight against. So this is this is a compromised document. I think we we put it on some sort of a a pedestal, kind of like we do the Bible, right? We just you know you talked about inspiration and things. You have a, a looser understanding of all that stuff. It's the same thing we do there. We put it on some sort of a pedestal and don't realize that you know transmission history of these documents and the negotiation that that other people did with the text before we're getting to it. And now we as evangelicals or progressives or liberals, now we're negotiating with the text. I don't think we get what these texts actually are. And they be, they take on some sort of power on their own. And that's just not the way it works. At their best though, even like Westminster, which for me is, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty adamantly non-reformed. So uh, Westminster is going to be a hard no for me, dog. However, I, you know, in reading, I think, is it A River Runs Through It or The River Why? Those two books I get mixed up. But one of them, in one of those books, the dad of the main characters is a Presbyterian minister and kind of drills the, I think it's the Westminster Confession into his kids. And the book, and the, the sort of the novel and the story really opens with, a reflection on the, the first line of the, I don't know, I, I'm trying to remember which one it is, but it might be Heidelberg, it might be Westminster, but it's, what is the chief end of man was basically the, per, what's the purpose of life? Right. And it is to love God and enjoy him forever. And glorify every, God. Glorify, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay. That's right. Westminster. That's the, <laughs> the glorify part. Yeah. That's the, uh, 
I, I obviously have changed it in my own mind to a less reformed version. <laughs> yeah. I find arguments about God's glory to be so personally so silly because I'm like, oh, you mean like creating a universe is not enough? Like, you know, like just acknowledging, mm-hmm. thank you, God, for creating the universe. God needs like more glory or whatever. And I that's probably a that's I'm probably being a little bit unfair, um, doing a little bit of a straw man there. But the way that glory has been argued just sort of in in conversations I've had with people, I always find to be quite unconvincing. Maybe you can give me a better version of that. But either okay, either way, so to glorify God, which, you know, what does include love, of course, like and to enjoy him forever. And then everything else is kind of nestled under that. It's like if you have to go back to something, if you're in that tradition, you can go back to that line. Or for me, as a liberal Protestant, like I go back to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. There are these like big lines that sort of serve as umbrellas, uh, conceptual umbrellas in tough moments in life. And that one sticks with me, even though maybe very little else uh, in that confession sticks with me. Like, I do think about that a lot. Apparently, I, I have been misremembering it and changing glorify to love. But I think it's close enough to the spirit of the document. What do you think about that? I obviously, I, I would probably disagree with you because I think it's a fantastic line, glorify and enjoy. Like, that's one of the things that draws me to that kind of a statement. Say more about that. I, I want to hear, I want to hear a steel man version of this than talking about God's, like God's glory. Uh, Cause it's been so poisoned for me, um, but that's, that does, that might not reflect reality. Yeah. I, I think it's probably poisoned in some progressives mind because we think of it as some sort of narcissistic God that like, Hey, Everybody needs to point the light on me, but I, yeah, man, I'm, I'm bringing out my old inner piper. When you are creator and king over all things, and if you want to flourish the most, he says the way to flourish the most is to honor and to exalt me. That brings you the most glorification. So uh, Piper will say, right, how does he say it? We are most we are most satisfied when he is most glorified. He says it better, way cooler. If I wasn't on the spot, I'd be able to come up with it. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but yeah, I think our satisfaction can be found in his glorification. I, I don't have a problem. That theology doesn't uh, put me off against God. It doesn't change his love of us. I don't find that to be concerning. You talked about, you know, you know grace commandment, second is like into this. That stuff's all in Westminster as well. Yeah. So it's not, it's not that it's missing, you know, like, well, Again, progressives like let's just stick with the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Sermon on the Mount's in Westminster. Like that's this that's pretty significant to us too. Um, we're you know to us conservative evangelicals, we understand what social justice is. We we love it. I hope we should anyway. It shouldn't <laughs> all be just. But we just do it with a purpose in mind. Like it's it's yeah. the purpose is is glory, and our our joy comes in bringing him glory. I, I guess I've never wavered from that. I have to think about it in maybe more pessimistic terms or yeah, as think through my theology a little better, but one of the, one of the things that I, I know has been a sticking point for me with the idea of kind of nesting this all in God's glory. Of course, I realize there are different ways of meaning God's glory such that some of them would be gorgeous and beautiful. And I would fully sign off on historically, you know, if we think about, the abuses of the church throughout the years, you know, call it the, from the crusades. I'm sure there's, 
We could think of things before the Crusades, Inquisition. We could think about the religious wars that kind of defined Europe, you know, in the in the Middle Ages and beyond. Even thinking about the way that conservatives who have kind of a, a medium um, megaphone tend to talk about this stuff. It ends up being authority a lot of times. Like it, the word glory often turns into maybe a cover for the pursuit of power and control. I want to be careful here. I don't agree with many progressives, Christian or or otherwise, who turn the lens of power and control into the only lens through which we see any struggle between competing parties or ideas. I don't think that's true, but I do think it's a useful lens among other lenses and God's glory for a set of ideas or approaches or whatever that our group has already deemed to be accurate and now has God's stamp. And it's not, it's his glory. You know, it's like, this is, it gives it this kind of supercharge authority thing to it in practice. I'm not sure what the concern is with authority. And maybe maybe there's a progressive versus conservative. I'm playing the conservative for sure here. Yeah. Uh, if we get into Bible hermeneutics, you'll find I'm very progressive. But uh, <laughs> what is the problem with authority? So the one who created us and is king over us, and we we're concerned with him having authority or having the final word, or in some way asking us to be a certain way. I mean, you're the one who just came up with, you know, you listed the things, uh, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's that he's asking us, telling us to do those things, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Like those kinds of things are things that God is, has authority to do. Jesus says, I'm, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. I don't know. Authority doesn't seem to bother me. Defining authority is a concern for me, especially when we come to the Bible, which is not what we're talking about right now. But how is the Bible authoritative is a very, uh, very important question to me. And I think about it all the time that I don't have the answers to, but I don't, the God himself being an authority in my life and saying, here, I know how life works. I've created it. And here is the best way to flourish. That seems uh, very beautiful to me. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Insofar as it really is God, I agree. Okay. I think well, sure. maybe that's an issue is like, how yeah, confident yeah. are we? You right. know, in, in my own spiritual abuse research, like one of the themes that comes up, one of sort of the types of spiritual abuse is you could maybe say an overselling of a religious leader or religious communities. A leader can have power. The community itself can have power, elders, whatever. Pick your, whoever has the kind of say, right, in the community a kind of overselling of their access to that, to an accurate interpretation of that authority and the details therein that, that is claimed to be God. And maybe that's part of what it is, is that, and I, I don't know what the reasons are for this, maybe psychological, maybe sociological, maybe it's chance, but the dudes, generally dudes, but sometimes women that I've known over the years who are really into God's glory are also really into their confidence that they have rightly divined what God wants to do with that authority, which also conveniently God has given them or their community or the way, you know, their denomination or, you know, whatever, however you want to parse that. So that might actually not be a problem with glory itself, you know, with, with that, or even authority itself properly understood. 
I agree. It, the problem is, you know, the problem why people don't like Jesus is because because uh, of his people, because people are jerks sometimes. Uh, problem we have with authority of God is that people say, this is God's, God has the authority and you need to hear it from me because I have understood him correctly. And yeah, what we need is more humble preachers and pastors who are trying to model this good life, this flourishing, abundant life, and saying from the pulpit and living in the world in authentic, sincere ways that say, I don't have the answer. Let's wrestle with this together. Here is what I will pound the pulpit on. Jesus is king. He calls you into a beautiful relationship with him. Yeah. And the other things are things that we're in community, just like we're wrestling with Westminster, Heidelberg, or whatever else. In community, we're wrestling with these things. So when I preach, I try, of course, everyone maybe tries. I try to say, hey, there's a lot of different views on the way this works, but here's where I kind of come down right now. And honestly, I might not have come down here five years ago, and I might not come down here in five more years. But here's where I'm kind of seeing this. But either way, regardless, I think this is the call for us in our particular situation right now. Yeah, let's let's have a conversation about it. So that one of the beautiful things about progressive, even if it's overused, is conversation, journey, right? Those kinds of things are wonderful things. Like let's let's have the conversation together. And I'm okay with being wrong because I know where I lived 10 years ago and where I lived 20 years ago. And growth is kind of part of, I hope, the Christian life. If you really enjoy and really value what you hear on this show, you can support it financially by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. It's seven bucks a month and it includes access to at least two exclusive episodes per month that main feed listeners don't get to hear, as well as advertising free uh, main feed episodes on your special patron feed, as well as membership in the Facebook group which is an incredible online community of like-minded people asking very similar questions, helping each other with resources, you know, just, just kind of sharing stories, feeling less alone. Uh, I'm, I'm mixing it up in that group all the time, as is Josh Gilbert uh, and often Kristen and Sari who work on marketing stuff. It's a, it's a cool community. Um, it helps me make this show, uh, helps me uh, pay for my time, as well as the costs of paying for Josh. Kristen and Sari and, and other, you know, associated costs with the show. So I'd really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we can, uh, we can make this, make this world a better place together. Is that too, is that reaching too far? I don't know. Patreon.com slash Dan Let's get back to the episode. You mentioned to me before that kind of Genesis and Exodus, those are, that's sort of your main area of biblical focus for your own work. But you've also said a couple times now that like your hermeneutic of the Bible, meaning your approach to reading the scripture, you know, the question of hermeneutics is like, okay, we have this text, but how should we interpret it? Right. There are many options. Uh, here's the option I think is best. And here's why. So that would be a hermeneutical argument. You've mentioned that you're progressive in, in that sense, in the way that you read the text. So I'm wondering if there are more liberal or progressive ways of reading Genesis, for instance, that that could be about the creation story, but it could also be about Noah and the flood, could be about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and certainly the book of Exodus. 
you know, uh, the sort of historical details of the Exodus or, or non-historical uh, and many of the themes there. Are there ways that progressives or liberals tend to read those books that you do disagree with or are worried about or find problematic or anything like that? I'm sure there are, but I don't know what they are. Not the obvious ones. Like it doesn't bother you if like the Exodus was not historical because there doesn't appear to have been evidence of 2 million people wandering around the Near East in that time. To me, those are just academic issues. We, we say, it was a, is it a conservative or a progressive issue? Those are just academic issues. I think anybody in the academy is well aware of those things. So it's the people in the pew that aren't aware of those things. So that the exodus took place or not. Now, I don't, I don't know what actually happened, you know, how historiography works. I don't know if this has its final editing process in the, in the exile or post-exile, and it's trying to create a story out of you know, whole cloth to give them an identity, or whether there is something there in, like, in reality. There's a, a kernel that's deep in there. My guess is there's something there, but it's really quite literally a guess. I, I just, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a desire. Maybe it's a want that there be something historical there because it's used it seems to be used over and over again throughout the old and the new testament as a bouncing off point yeah so yeah it doesn't concern me that that yeah i don't i don't think that the exodus took place like at least the way that it explains it as it did i don't think you you know you're going to find chariot wheels underneath the sea of reeds which we don't know what that is or yeah. where that is uh, there's no yeah we, we don't have a clue so, and if you find chariot wheels, there's not proof of anything. There's just, they, yeah, there were probably chariots in the area. And we don't know that that was the particular place. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, but, th- but this is interesting because I think that you are able to occupy, I don't know if I would call it a rare space. I know that there are a lot of, let's just say f- for shorthand, moderate evangelical pastors, whether that's exactly a good term to describe you and the other people I'm talking about or not, it's close enough of what I mean of like, well-meaning, faithful men and women. Not very many of the women are allowed to pastor in evangelical spaces. They are uh, in my but, church. Just okay, while. great. But, yeah. And there's Foursquare and there's, you know, there are um, exceptions. PCUSA, you know, things like that. PCUSA churches can either be like pretty flaming liberal or they can essentially be evangelical. PCUSAers, don't at me. I understand there's a... Uh, <laughs> look, I'm not a church polity expert. I'm a therapist. Okay. But like... This kind of well-meaning, faithful, really attempting to kind of hold balance for the sake of their congregations, people that they serve and love. That class of people who are, you know, at least somewhat seminary educated, you know, like yourself and who like you're able to kind of in your mind hold that like so much of the basic historical claims of the Bible, especially the old Testament are like, you don't really care if it happened or not. It's not a real, it doesn't really affect things for you. And yet I'm sure, you know, for so many of the people at any number of these churches you've served at and will serve at in the future, it would blow their fucking minds if they started to question that. And that's interesting. Like that alone is so interesting to me, how much you can hold in your mind and what you choose to put into a sermon, what you choose to share for the benefit of, you know, your flock essentially. Yeah. And I, I do take the sort of pastor shepherd flock 
congregant analogy seriously because I think that you know human human society needs shepherds because we often are sheep in very meaningful ways. I think Jesus, those metaphors of Jesus are are pretty accurate psychologically, sociologically. So yeah, I don't know. Is I don't know if you have anything to kind of speak to that. It's just it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. Yeah, as a preacher, I'm careful as I bring these things up. I might suggest, hey, you know, there's some there's some people who are thinking like this and like this, and you know, it's legitimate ways of thinking. Here's I'm trying to take you to the point for me, proclamation Jesus. Like I'm trying to take you to that. But I also get to teach in these evangelical churches. I get to teach Sunday schools or classes in the evening. Right. I will walk through the primeval history and I will explain that this might not be a fall. It might be more a failure to mature story um, and a story. And Adam and Eve, you know, mankind and the, the you know, beginner of life, li- the living, like those are symbols and snakes don't talk. And honestly, most people aren't real blown away. I mean, it's new. It's interesting. I get a lot of just thank you for like not just giving us the line that we need to hear that six literal yeah. days, all those things. Yeah. Thank you for telling us what's actually happening in the academy and how people think good Christians who love Jesus and are trying faithfully to love the sheep can show us that science and archaeology and human writing and the way it works and how it can show them those things. They actually love it. It, it, it re-enlivens for me, the old Testament, because that's mostly what I teach, but even the new Testament, it does beautiful things to that. And it, it gives them a new look at, uh, I think at the gospel story, as you go through those stories and you show what they might be doing, they might be doing something different than you expect them. And as they lead to this more robust understanding of the gospel, then, Hey, you just don't have to go to hell. Woo. Like there's a whole lot more to it. Yeah. We have the charge of the world subduing, caring for, managing this world. It's all ours, which changes every, you know, if you see Genesis as doing something like that in the beginning, it changes our, our every day in, in how we interact with that. Like we have ownership. We're kings. We're vice regents, partners with God. And all that's happening in Genesis chapter one. And if we're vice regents with God, then that means this world is our inheritance, whatever that means. That means, I, I mean, the things that I own, I take care of pretty well. My house, I own it. I'm, you know, I'm going to be working on this water pump for eight hours in the freezing cold, whatever it is that I'm doing, because yeah. I own it. But if God says you have the inheritance of the world, then that means my neighbors, their property and all these things are mine too, because the, like, not, they're not like mine. I know they own their things, but I care so much for them. To, I, I don't know. It just opens up this whole understanding of the gospel of what kingship is. And it's not just some authoritarian subduing, but it's in such a beautiful kingly sense where you care for those around you. So I think they, yeah. like these stories, if you, they open up in new ways as you show them that they don't have to be perfectly historical. Like, you know, Jonah probably didn't get swallowed by a wit. Like the whole thing isn't even a, about that Job probably didn't exist. You know, it's just, it's just the way the genre works. Those are, I don't know that it reopens the Bible for me and for most of the people I teach. So I, know, I think those conservatives out there aren't that. Don't tell us this. You're destroying our story. Most of them are okay with it. I'm just, trust me. I definitely get some hit back, Yeah, but I don't think they're all just adamantly against a more metaphorical or I would call it a more literal 
more literary uh, view of the Bible, doing what the authors are trying to do. There is a question, though, like where how much of that you extend to the New Testament? You know, so we think, oh, sure, this is supposedly about events that happened, you know, if you go by the text numerically 6,000 years ago or something, right, in the, the creation story. Of course, there's even longer ways of, you know, sort of casting that date back, depending on if you think the author, I mean, I'm just saying, even whatever you think the original author thought, I'm not saying that I don't obviously think there's really any chance that the universe is 6,000 years old. Um, But maybe even the author didn't either. But the point just being, oh, that's so long ago. But actually, like, you know, depending on when it was all written or compiled and edited, we're, we're talking about what, something like, 1300 BC to 350 BC, somewhere in somewhere in that realm, these stories kind of took their form and or were finalized or whatever. The New Testament stories are a few hundred years later and still 2000 years behind us today. Right. And yeah, snakes don't talk, but also like people don't ascend to heaven, Jace. Bodies don't go up into the stratosphere where God lives. Like we, you know, we think about this stuff differently. I know you, you did kind of mention that, that earlier, but like my, my experience as an individual and in conversation with others is like, you start applying that similar logic or asking similar questions of some of the details around Jesus. And it doesn't, it's not as much fun in games, a more pure deepening of sort of our poetic understanding of the text you know, I, I love the vice regents co-creators. I mean, as a therapist, that's really resonant. You do have some co-creative power over your own life and the people in your life. And like, if you take that seriously, if you engage in values directed action to maybe translate it into therapy speak, beautiful, flourishing, ascension, resurrection, you know, virgin birth, miracle stories, mud doesn't make people's eye learn to see either, Jace. So- what, what happened, you know, talk me through that, the sort of transitioning into the New Testament stuff. There's a question in, I guess, Old Testament studies. Maybe it's in all kinds of theological studies. I don't know. But is it equally important to to believe that Jericho was raised and Jesus was raised as an R-A-Z-E-D raised? Um, oh, as in like the, the conquest, the, you know, Canaanite right. conquest. Yeah. So you say, okay, well, I don't, we don't believe that Jericho was actually destroyed the way it says the walls, et cetera, archeologically, it tells us all that stuff, but yeah, that's one raising. We're okay with that one not having taken place, but the Jesus one is very, very significant, right? That's he, a good, little, good, that's a good little phrase. Yeah. And for sure, they, I, hopefully I want to have a consistent hermeneutic throughout. And I don't want to say, I don't want to differentiate the Old Testament from the New Testament. Like, well, none of the miracles happened in the Old Testament. None of the histories. I, I don't think that. Like, I do think that uh, Elijah and Elisha did things that were okay. miraculous. I do think things happened. And for sure, in their primitive minds, they would have written them in certain ways. But I have no problems believing in a supernatural God and him having done uh, amazing, cool things in the Old Got Testament. It just as he would do things in the New Testament. So I don't get rid of all of my miracle stories. But I do understand that history writing is different than actual reality. So you are are shaping a story when you tell it in words, right? um, You know, we're not going back in a time machine. There's no camera on these things. Somebody is shaping either an event or a story 
that they want in order to accomplish a certain purpose. They're they're trying to hopefully it's persuasive speech, it's rhetorical speech. They're trying to get you somewhere, and it's biased. It's it has all these presuppositions, and they want you to believe what they believe. You know, we, we I want you to believe that David is the better king than Saul. So the Davidite right. empire is more important than the Saulite one. Um, that's good, but there's probably some other ones that work the other direction. It's not the Bible's not univocal. So when we get into the New Testament, I don't think a lot changes. We still have to have the same understanding. We still have to know they are coming to these texts or to these stories that they've heard. Some, I would probably assume, are eyewitnesses. I know historical critics might not agree 100% with me on that, but I think probably some of them have seen some things. But regardless, they're getting stories, they're getting feedback, and they're shaping those stories in a certain way. For sure, they're shaping John to look like Elijah. For sure, they're shaping Jesus's stories as he does miracles to look like miracles from the Old Testament. Yeah, Matthew shapes him to be like Moses, right? That's right. He's climbing up a mountain. He's got a new set of laws. You know, right. that's that's all purposeful five books of Matthew, right? Five different sections. Yeah. I think it's all intentional. Now, the question is, does that take away from the actual ascension or the actual resurrection or any of those things? I don't, I don't think it necessarily takes away you could go that direction. It would be an easy jump to make if you wanted to say, hey, people don't raise from the dead. Of course, they don't raise from the dead. But I think everybody at that time also believed that people don't raise from the dead. Like, that's not a, it's not a modern, brilliant, like, we're so smart now in our, in our century, we've figured this out. Like, they knew people don't rise from the dead. Is there legendary aspects to it, mythological things that might come into the story? Yeah, probably so. Um, but I think when we get to, especially to, well, uh, the gospel writers themselves, but Paul, I feel like, now, that, granted, there's a difference between what the author believes and what actually took place, or there yeah. might be. But I think Paul is very, very strictly wants us to understand that there is a little literal bodily resurrection taking place. I think the gospel authors are, are trying to make that as clear as they can by showing that Jesus is eating food and, you know, you can touch his hands and like they're trying to say, this is a real thing. This isn't just a metaphor. And then, you know, Paul's going to make it really obvious. You know, if we don't believe this happened literally, then we're among all men, most miserable, most to be pitied. Yeah. So I think we have to, we don't have to. I think I would want to say and still proclaim quite boldly and loudly that Jesus actually literally got up from the dead. I would say that Jesus probably played that. Well, I don't even know. I, the ascension is a weird one for me. The ascension's yeah. tough, man. Yeah. And so maybe they're not standing there looking at him actually going up. I'm okay. Even though he says they actually stood there looking at him going up. I would be okay if they didn't actually do that, but he's trying to make a bigger point. And I do think that that is a pretty good place to kind of draw the conflict. I just don't think miracles happen. And every time I say this, people will write to me or there's different ways of conceiving of what a miracle is. And that's totally true. And I, you know, I'm pretty sloppy about sort of definitions there. And I probably haven't put in the requisite sort of philosophical work to, to parse that accurately. But basically, like, if people are healed in this world, then and now, I don't think, like, platelets show up out of nowhere to, like, clot a wound or whatever. Like, I don't, I think if you 
had a microscope going or had the proper blood work tools or anything for any time that anyone is healed, like you will find a physical correlate that is not mind bogglingly. Whoa. You know, all of a sudden antibiotics just showed up in this person's system or, you know, people will talk about how of all the healings that, that people supposedly witness, like no one's ever seen a leg grow back in 10 seconds. Like the truly, there are an innumerable amount of truly miraculous things that could theoretically happen that no one ever sees. What we instead get is, this is me speaking totally personally, like when Paul says, this is no longer God, but I write in my own hand, okay? This is my moment of that. Like, what I think is, there's a lot of evidence, psychologically, that people interact with these kinds of claims and and want these kinds of things to be true. The mind is extremely powerful. The placebo effect is extremely powerful. Confirmation bias, you know, communal, like in-group thinking. We talked earlier about to, to connect it back to the way these confessions work. That's why the confessions work to connect people to a particular community, because we are, for whatever reason, wired to want these kind of guardrails and then to use those to define our group. And then if we can be in loving community with that group, it is tremendously good and healthy for us. But if we, if we get nitpicky about the particular beliefs of that group that allowed that binding to occur, I think stuff starts to break down pretty quickly and you can't really argue for the universality of it but it does work and it gets people close uh, in a way that is so good for them that I think God wants for them. So it's not, you know, I'm not against it in that, in that kind of larger sense. And I never will try and dissuade a client about aspects of their faith that are bringing them solace or community or helping them make meaning of suffering in their life, all that. But if I'm wearing my, what do I think is true hat as I just kind of, look through the world and, and try and be open to the truth and evidence and, and whatever, I go, well, there's a lot of evidence that the human mind is a fickle thing, especially in community, especially when community is on the line uh, or suffering or, you know, like apocalypticism shows up when groups of people are under tremendous, you know, sociopolitical pressure, pain, uh, persecution, then the mind goes to the four horsemen are going to come wipe all these fuckers out because like we need to believe that. And I feel for people who need to believe that. Do I think that that means that I should be on the lookout for those four horsemen? I don't think I, I don't think I should. I think that's like probably an irrational thing for me to do. That's a, a kind of what we're talking about in a few ways here, right? Is that difficult tension between what's good for people and what, if I'm really honest with myself, what do I think is true? And I struggle with that, frankly. I, I think I struggle similarly without all of your psychological understanding on all this stuff. And I've definitely read enough on the way our like cultural memory works in, right. in scripture and today. Uh, yeah, I feel like I, I, I'm willing to go with you so far. It's always that last step. Yeah. I'm just like, it seems to change everything to me. So if you were to say something like, hey, these, these miracles in the New Testament, which I think 
I would assume you would agree that they're trying to at least get you to think that there's miracles taking place or. Oh, I, I definitely agree that the gospel writers and Paul, like which letter is that in? Is that like an unimpeachably Paul one or is it one of the contested Paul ones? That wouldn't make as much difference to me, but, yeah. and yeah. I do agree that there are some that are him and not others. Yeah. But uh, it, it, me, may, it may not matter here either, but like whatever, whoever is saying that, whether it's Paul or, or, or someone writing under Paul's, name in the line of Paul that's been accepted by the church, you know, historical, either way. So that line, if Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied above all men. That's one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to have to disagree with you there, Paul. And I'm glad I'm not an inerrantist because what I know that Paul didn't know, not because Paul was stupid, but because Paul lived in 50 AD, is that there are 10,000 religions and there are, have been, you know, 30 billion people who have lived on this earth since ancient history. And if you count all the sort of proto homo sapiens and whatever, I mean, you get, I don't know what that number is. Somebody probably has an estimate. And like, if any single human being is wrong about their fundamental religious claims, they're not to be pitied above all men like that. I just, I just deny that phrase for any religion. Uh, You come to me and say, my grandpa lived his whole life as a Zoroastrian. He is an immigrant from Iran or whatever. Isn't he, isn't he to be, isn't he so pitiable that he lived and died a Zoroastrian? I'd be like, fuck no, he's not to be pitied. In what ways did Zoroastrianism help him love himself, love God, love his neighbor, love you, his granddaughter, you know, like, so how, how anachronistic am I being in my reading of Paul? There's probably a meaning he had about why would that make us to be pitied above all men that would be different than the way that I would think that I would sort of use those terms or like why I would think to be pitied. It would be to be wrong. That's how I'm thinking of it. Like in a post enlightenment, you know, truth claims kind of a guy. I don't know. Do, do you have another do you have another take on on that line of Paul or something else jump out in what I just said that you want to respond to? No, I don't think I have any more takes on Paul because, yeah, I just kind of threw that one out there on the side and had, I, you know, I have to do some exegesis and try and understand it. But I do pastorally and maybe maybe not as academically, but I do think there there are truths and we can have truth claims of things that that either happened or are currently happening in our life. I think it's okay for us to say that some people are wrong and other people are right about things. And I don't want to. That's, but that's different. That's not what he's saying. Like, I, I, I agree. I I think that it's to the extent that I don't believe these various things. Like I do believe some alternate thing. And if, you know, of course I have my opinion, how much confidence I have in that opinion is a, is a, a very important, you know, element of that to me. And, you know, for instance, the interviews I've done around intellectual humility and humility in general, I'm thinking of, of psychologists like Daryl Von Tongren, who's been on the show a couple times and says like humility is like being the right size, right? Humility. And you could say that about intellectual humility as well. So intellectual humility is having your intellectual claims or your confidence in your beliefs be the right size relative to the evidence, you know, your own experience versus other people's experience, whatever. Now, then people will, of course, disagree about, actually, I think we have more confidence here, or I think we have less confidence here, and you can you can have those discussions. But what I'm going for, what I'm looking for is that golden mean of like, I have the right amount of confidence for given this sort of topic and evidence and, and, and whatever my own limitations might be, et cetera. And I don't want to have too much confidence where I'm going out over my skis, I don't want to like just wash my hands of it and have no confidence 
if there is good evidence, you know, so it's, it's trying to be open to that and, and finding that spot. And when I think about, yeah, it, Paul is not that the way that that statement's been used anyway, in, in my experience with Christians and churches and whatnot is not about just, well, we believe some things. Of course we believe things and we disbelieve the opposite of those things. I think that's totally true and, and obvious, but I don't think that's what, that's not how that's been used. It's been like, that's why we must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Cause look, we're idiots if we don't. And I think what that's weird logic. So maybe a little bit of context and again, not knowing where it's coming from, but it Paul Pharisee resurrection is very important to the Pharisees, not yeah. so much to the Sadducees. Right. So for him, this is the beginning of the first fruits of the resurrection. Right. So without Jesus being raised from the dead, no one else gets raised from the dead. Like he's the beginning of all of this. So yes, we're to be most pitied. Like we're not going to be raised. That's pretty mm. significant. This is this this will make everybody very miserable. You're not going to get what you've been hoping for. And for him, as he's reinterpreting the Old Testament, what the Old Testament I think is leaning leading to. I don't know, I'm not sure it was leading to that. But as he looks back on it and sees it, you yeah. know, culminating in Christ as the climax of the covenant, then that I think that's pretty significant. Like that's that's his big thing. That opens up something really interesting for me, because because sometimes I you know my Christian faith has become increasingly pragmatic, Jace. Like yeah. it is increasingly less about truth claims for reasons I don't even need to explain if people have been listening to this conversation. That should be clear. Uh, But really increasingly about it works, like living a Christian life works, engaging in Christian liturgy works. It makes me a better version of myself, encourages me to be better. I see the fruit of it. It gives me an ethical and moral framework, you know, in things like the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a limit to that. So there is a point at which I would start to pity people. So take, for instance, the, the book and movie Silence, uh, the Shusaku Endo novel that Scorsese turned into a film with, with Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield. Have yeah, you seen, yeah. have you read I, or seen? I think I did see that, yes. So the, the kind of theological question at the heart of that film for these Portuguese Jesuit missionaries right. in the 17th century in Japan is like, uh, is it actually helping these Japanese peasants, essentially, who some of whom are converting to Christianity, you know, are they are they really giving them something of value, eternal or temporal value? Or is there like a massive miscommunication? At one point, one character says they've been worshiping the literal son this whole time, not the S-O-N, son of God. Like you guys have not been clear about that. And it's this syncretistic kind of Shintoism mixed with Christianity. You know, there's and there's the question of like whether or not one of the priests hears the voice of Jesus telling him to apostatize. And that's a question that is expertly left open. Uh, by the writer and and the film, actually Scorsese kind of comes down one way in a way that I think Endo leaves open in the original book. But these are fascinating questions. Like, could it ever be in someone's best interest from God's perspective to apostatize? I I just love I love the murky toughness of that question and sort of the like existential and really like dark waters it takes one to to kind of think through that. And that is connecting a bit for me around kind of what Paul's getting to, because there is a there is a certain life for my pragmatic, practical Christianity. 
beyond which I would not go. I would probably apostatize and not die for my very lukewarm, you know, (laughs) Unitarian adjacent Christianity. Like that would be, I think then I would maybe be pitied. Like, so, so that's kind of where it does. And, and in Paul's day, this was of course much, uh, it was more on the horizon than it was. I mean, he was eventually killed. All these, most of the disciples, at least as legend goes, were, were martyred for their faith. So they're living in a very different situation than I'm living in with regard to these real life consequences. And so maybe you could interpret it that way as like, we're all going to die for this. And so if we are wrong, then we are really pitiable. And I, I, I'm thinking out loud here. I'm processing in verbally processing with you in real time. I wonder if there's a way that I could affirm that for Paul, but just say, it's just not, it's not true in the same way for you and I, because we don't live in that circumstance. And actually, if I were to like, if I were John Chow and I go try and spread the gospel, but with like a teenager's brain and I just go get myself killed, like I think John Chow's pretty pitiable, you know, the, the missionary who went uh, to the unreached, broke the law and went to these unreached people and was, was murdered by them in self-defense, I'm sure from their perspective, you know, so there's pity, but where's the pity? And I feel like I have given you no question at all with all of that. I've been groping around in the dark. I'm hoping you've got something to say. I, I don't think I do, but I love the groping. So this, <laughs> this is fascinating to me. Uh, and I'm sure your listeners are like, yes, this is good. This is murky waters. And we want to, we want to think through those kinds of things. I've trained them well. Like we think about inspirations. God says this, this is what gets, this is what we think in the pew usually, right? This is what got, it's been some sort of dictation theory or something, which of course no one really believes, but, or somehow God has led them. And I think probably the best definition that I've heard of inspiration is life giving, which leads into your idea of pragmatism because it gives life. Like it does this work? Does this give me life in this particular instance, which is, I think how the books of the Bible are chosen or, or started to whittle down. Does this, does this give us life where we're at in our particular time? Uh, which I don't think really to what you were saying, but maybe helps me connect to you life-giving idea. I'm okay with that. I'm not sure that our Christian life is completely, is, is meant to be practical, uh, especially for people who are dying for their faith. I think that that's the world that they lived in. For sure. I would still like to, and you said that truth claims are okay. I, I feel like I would still like to hold on to those truth claims, like having a, a creed of some kind, that, which brings us all the way full circle back to the beginning of our conversation. Something that I can say, I hold on to this, even if I hold on to it loosely, I'm, I'm holding on to truth claim, not just what makes my life better, if that's what you mean by pragmatism. No, I, I don't mean it just making it better. I, I do partly, but William James said a pragmatic approach to a religious question is like, to the extent that it works, we can be confident in saying that it's true. So it isn't merely about making things better. It's like proof in the pudding is also a part of it. So I do want to go a a little like, I don't know if it's going farther than some of my fellow progressives or, you know, liberal mainliners or something like that. Or if it's just like, like it might be perceived as I'm defending less defensible versions of faith that people hold maybe. But what I think I'm doing is trying to be 
careful epistemologically, trying uh-huh. to be careful about overconfidence we might have about things, especially about things being false that people who we think are stupider than we are would believe are true. That's a big one for me. That is for me always a hold on. Like that's what I call like the Bill Maher, Sam Harris problem where, you know, they, they come out and they're like, look at these ridiculous religious people. And I'm like, okay, cool. Your jets guys. Like, you mean like all those people who do have believe in miracles? Well, sure. But that's what I'm saying. I don't want to, I want to be careful. I have to think about for myself, the cheese stands alone. Here I stand. I I can do no other, right? Like I am before God, you know, responsible for my own discernment, right? But more where I go is like, are there other ways of understanding this claim or practice where we can go, oh, that's why it's working for people. And, and in that sense, it is making their lives better. That's what I, in that sense, I do mean that by pragmatism, but also it could be true in a way that we are being, that we lack the imagination to see. I've told, I've told an example kind of like this before, like with children clients, you know, who uh, I gave an example, like a, I slightly changed and de-identified this example of a, of a, a kid where it's like loses her dad and every time it rains says like, well, that's like dad, dad is giving me a bath again. Well, okay. No, <laughs> but like maybe, right? Like if it's possible that God set things up such that we have this love and care and that to the extent that our parent is loving us, that's also God loving us at the same time. And maybe God loving us is our parent loving us. Like, I don't know how this stuff works. I don't know where, you know, her dad went, quote unquote, you know, like I don't, that's beyond my pay grade. And I don't want to be an asshole, especially if I can't, if I don't have receipts for it. So that's the attention I'm living in. Maybe I'm trying to have it both ways. I don't know. Uh, Well, I'm sure that you are. I'm sure that we all are. (laughs) Yeah. That's not really an insult. Um, I think you're, yeah. yeah, I think you're trying to have your Old Testament, New Testament thing maybe both ways a little bit. I, I am. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to hold on to, I mean, so what we've done is we're moving from, you know, hermeneutics and, and biblical, uh, a biblical focus to, okay, what's your actual theology? What are you, what are you going to derive from all of this? And that's, it's much easier for me to say, I'm pretty sure Paul meant this than yeah. it is to say, how do I take that now? Him being a person in his particular world with his understanding of things, you know, I don't have any problem with saying that Paul, uh, I'm going to say it very carefully, may not have had the exhaustive truth on things, or to say that, you know, Jesus was wrong when he said that the mustard seed is the smallest seed, for instance. We don't have to, you know, NIV move some things in there and say, you know, it's your smallest seed. Like, it doesn't say that. Like, I just think he didn't get that, or he didn't care about that. Maybe that wasn't the point. Yeah. So, for me, I don't, that doesn't bother me. It's that move. And yeah, I am trying to have it both ways. I'm trying to be academically fair with those texts and uh, still speak up for something that happened in my life. Like something that has moved me and has brought life to me is not some text of scripture and how it's properly interpreted, but is the spirit as he moves in me. And I know now I'm being all spiritual and pastoral, but yeah, I am trying to have it 
both ways. And I'm trying to see how those two things can mix. And I, I'm not convinced that they can't. So I hope, I think that there is some sort of a thing there. And I'm sure that I'm getting it wrong as I'm moving there. Like your epistemology is much more sophisticated than mine. You've thought through this a lot more deeply than I have. And so you, your musings there are just bringing up all kinds of things in my own thinking that I could bring into my scriptural interpretation, but I appreciate you ending by kissing my ass. Thanks for that, Chase. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the goal. I want to tell you you're wrong in, in everything I can. I just, I, I'm very judgmental. I'm Enneagram one. I like to be right about everything, but yeah, I, I just don't know enough. So why am I drawn to so many friends who are like that? We'd love to duke it out, I guess. Jace, this has been a really fun conversation. I had no idea where it went. I wouldn't have predicted it went where it went. No. I have a whole page full of notes here that I was going to go in direction and we didn't talk about any of it. So whatever. <laughs> oh, well, oh, well, I hope that this yep. has been helpful for people. I, I kind of like ending on this unresolved note because frankly, I do think that these questions are not resolved. I'm increasingly believing that lack of resolution is part and parcel of faith in, in some way that if it was all resolved, then it wouldn't really make sense to call it faith. It would, you could maybe call it obedience you know, that yeah. that's probably the best thing you could say is, well, you know the thing to do and you obey it. But that's different than faith. I think faith involves, like, I like how Aaron Simmons, who's been on before, says faith equals risk plus direction. And, you know, that's not the entire maybe formula for Christian faith, but something about that really resonates with me. I, there is a risk here. I don't know that I'm right about this stuff, but there's also a direction. And for me, that direction is is Christian. It's a Christian direction even though it's this kind of barely, barely Christian, uh, <laughs> no miracles hanging on by my gums, Christianity, but it's still Christianity because it still involves the teachings of Jesus. It involves taking the Eucharist. It involves, you know, thinking about my baptism. It involves raising my kids Christian. You know, it, it, it is Christian. I'm just grateful to any Christians who will have me with my skeleton theology, barely sufficient to, to, to make me a member somewhere or, or participant. Uh, anything else to say before we wrap up, Jace? And where can listeners find you if they want to connect? Yeah, I'm not doing a whole lot out there. And I have social media accounts. You can just look up my name, Jace Broadhurst. I teach a school on Zoom on Tuesday evenings, which is kind of trying to be that, that in-between between academics and faith. So as a pastor and a professor at the same time, trying to show them that, you know, so we've been, we've been talking about canon for the last, I don't know, 16 or 17 weeks, how, how scripture came to be. And then we'll get back and we'll look at Jude for a little while and show how, how that's relevant and how it deals with second temple texts and lots of other things. So cool. it's, so yeah, you can get up there. That'd be great. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. I've been listening for a long time, so I love it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for buttering me up a little bit. Yeah. And uh, thanks to Josh Patterson for putting us together here. Uh, Josh is going to be on the show probably in a few months to do one of these still Christian episodes, or as I like to call them, still Krish, uh, about people like myself who continue to use the term Christian uh, for self-identification, despite so many of our uh, friends and, and colleagues and people in our circles having kind of left that behind for for various reasons some better than others and that's kind of what we talk about in those episodes so i'm looking forward to that you know feel free to to get us on a on a shared text or email blast after that jason and tell us what we missed um, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> thanks listeners uh we'll see you next time <laughs>